we know that there is a possibility to be truly free from sin that is found in Jesus Christ. May we as a church be a people that, are, that would show our dependence upon you, even as we celebrate all the things about our nation that we may love. And this morning we want to bring before you the Uyghur people in China. Oh Lord, this people group longs for freedom from constant surveillance and imprisonment and suffering, freedom to speak their own heart language, freedom to practice their own religion. And we pray that there would be a hunger for a deeper freedom to be delivered from seeking to earn their salvation through good works. So we pray that the evil being done to them would be stopped. And even more, we pray for missionaries and the few Uyghur Christians to be light in a dark place. We place fear with the hope that is found in Christ and his soon return. And Lord, as we give attention to your word, that too is our prayer. We pray that our hope would not be rooted in this world, but in Christ's appearing. Give us an eager expectation that surpasses all others for Christ's return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation. Revelation, the very last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verses 17 through 21. It'll be pretty easy to find where the book of Revelation is, is at the very end. You're probably at the last couple pages right there, right before the weights and measures. So Revelation chapter 22 verses 17 through 21. And if you are willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Listen to God's word. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning... We come to our final sermon in the book of Revelation. And all God's people said, amen. Yeah, that was the loudest amen I heard in a long time. Yes, it's been nearly, it's been over 40 sermons. It's been a year and a half as we've worked through the book of Revelation. And when I began this book in January of last year, 
Never did I imagine that this apocalyptic book would take us through an apocalyptic year. As we worked through Revelation, we saw so much of the book's contents seem to reflect in our world as the Bible often does. But in this past year, it seemed like the trumpet judgments had fallen upon us with a worldwide pandemic sweeping over the earth. In this past year, we had peals of thunder, rumblings, lightning, as the place around us was set on fire and our skies turned orange. We saw mankind, those not killed by the plague, still refuse to repent. And we saw social unrest, a contentious election, an insurrection on our, na- our nation's capital. Right before our eyes, people were turning away from the living God and they were worshiping the beast, so to speak. The political regimes of our day. So it is only fitting that on our, well, uh, Lord willing, that on our last day of our outdoor service, that we close the book on the book of Revelation. God in his providence brought Revelation into our lives as a church body. And for this season, and my prayer is that its message will continue to have a place in our hearts, that it will continue to mold and shape our hearts and our hands for a lifetime. While many people consider the book of Revelation to be a really hard book to understand, maybe the hardest book in the Bible. And certainly the imagery in the book is hard to understand. I mean, if we look at, you know, what does it mean that there are these locusts with, with, with breastplate of iron? What does that mean? Or what does it mean that there's this beast with ten horns and ten diadems on those horns? And looking at the trees of Revelation, we can say it is a challenge. It's a little confusing. But when we take a step back and look at the forest of Revelation... The main message of Revelation is actually really easy to understand. The main message of Revelation is this. Jesus wins. That's it. Jesus wins. Satan and all the forces arrayed against him lose. They are punished in the lake of fire. Jesus and all his followers are victorious. And they enter into the new heaven and new earth. Therefore, the application is endure, continue on, overcome. And and in many ways, the themes of overcoming in light of Jesus' impending and very soon victory. Those themes are apparent even as we come this morning to the end of Revelation. To really the end of Scripture. In our verses this morning, they are quite literally God's last words to mankind, to humanity. And what does God's word say? What is his last will and testament for this world. Well, he bequeaths to us, he gives to us, 
three things. First, in verse 17, God gives to us an invitation. That's what we see in verse 17. First, God gives to us an invitation, a word of invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Looking back on Revelation, if it has taught us anything, it is that God judges sin. And God judges sinners. There is no way of escaping that conclusion after going through the book of Revelation. This has perhaps sometimes made us squirm in our foldable chairs. That God is terribly angry with sinners. And as we saw in the seal judgments of chapter 6, God is right now, even right now, judging the earth, judging this world. While it is still today, he is judging and he's constantly calling people to repentance. When a virus encompasses the entire world, when buildings collapse in Florida, it's not that those people are worse sinners. Jesus, in Luke 13, says that when the Tower of Siloam fell, it was God's judgment upon a fallen world. And his message was this. His message was that 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 calamity is for your repentance. It is God's thunderclap to waken you and rouse you that there are worse judgments yet to come. It is his offer. And yet one day God will finally and completely judge the world for its idolatry and wickedness. Now, I don't love preaching these things. I mean, they're just not my wheel well, perhaps. But I love reading books like Gentle and Lowly. Now, tell me about Jesus being gentle and lowly. But I'm also unashamed of what God's word has to say about God's justice and his goodness Just think of all the imagery that we've had in Revelation. We've had plagues. We've had men gnawing their tongues in agony. We've had a a lake of fire. We've had birds coming to pick at the carcass after the battle of Armageddon. We've had blood as high as a horse's bridle. Or we've had that picture of God treading out the great winepress of his wrath. God is angry with sin. He will judge the unrepentant, unbelieving sinners. He is good. And he will bring his perfect justice to this unjust, corrupt, systemically sinful humanity. The most dangerous person in your life is God. And yet, and yet God's Salvation is also sure. Isn't that what Revelation has also taught us? His mercy is there time and time again. It is a call for repentance, for God's patience to save sinners. And he will bring them to safety. He will. For those who repent and follow after Jesus, those who are faithful, who love Jesus more than this world, who will endure to the very end, They will dwell in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. There's going to be these walls of protection that go way up into orbit. There's this language of being sealed and named and numbered. And God's people will be brought home to a a wedding feast, to a tree of life. 
and they will reign with Christ with no more crying and no more pain, no more tears, no more, no more sea, no more shut gates, no more night, no more temple, no more disappointment. All things will be made new, and this is for all those who follow Jesus Christ. And so here in these final verses of Revelation, what do we have? We have an invitation. It is an invitation to say, come, come, come and drink. If you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit and the bride, the church universal that is, beckons you to come. If you are without Christ, this invitation is given to you that you might come. Come to what? Come to Jesus. To be in Jesus. To be found in Jesus. Do you want to escape the judgment of God? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Do you want to be made right in the eyes of your maker? Do you desire to be included in God's glorious plan of salvation? Well, the word in this text does not say, say a thousand prayers. It doesn't say, sell all you have and give to the poor. It doesn't say, make a hundred converts. It doesn't say, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with those that do. That's not what it says. It says, no, what it says is required for you to be saved is that you recognize your thirst. He is calling you to come empty-handed, to long for him, to be needy, to recognize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, and the water is there for the taking. Come. Are you among the thirsty today? Come. He is the one who went to the cross. Come to Christ, who is the substitute for, our, for us, bearing God's wrath and judgment, if you will but repent of your sins and turn and trust in him. Reflecting on this invitation here, the Scottish minister of the 19th century, Robert Murray Machine, he wrote to a friend. He said this, I must not weary you. One word more. Look at Revelation 20, 22, 17. Sweet, sweet words. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. The last invitation in the Bible and the freest. Christ's parting word to the wor world of sinners. Anyone that pleases may take this glorious way of salvation. Can you refuse it? Dear friend, be persuaded by a fellow worm not to put off another moment. Come. Now, Christian brothers and sisters, I hope you see yourself in this verse. In verse 17, you are exhorted to share this news with others. Did you see that? You see that in verse 17, it says, let the one who hears say, come. That's you. You are the one who hears. You are being given a charge to go and tell others and to invite others. God's judgment is coming. God, Christ is returning. He is coming soon. And yet, while there is still time, while, this, while he has not yet returned, there is still hope. There is still time for you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation 20.10 that those who do not repent and follow Christ will be tormented day and night forever. Are you not moved by the thought of the lost? Earlier in chapter, uh, in this chapter, in verse 15, it said, Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers 
and idolaters and all who practice falsehood. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And that was some of you, that, were, that was you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not, if you're not that anymore, it's because of God's grace. And a part of that grace was God sending someone to tell you the good news about Jesus. So will you not be that person? for somebody else telling others to come well in these last words God gives us an invitation that's number one number two second God gives us an admonition an admonition or a warning look at verses 18 and 19 I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now those verses, could God be any more serious? You try to add any words, and I'm going to add to you plagues. You try to take away words, I'll take away your ability to come or I'll take away the privilege of you coming to share in the tree of life. Your soul depends on what you do with the word of God. Now, of course, these verses are primarily a reference to the book of Revelation. John is the author of Revelation, and he didn't know of anything called the New Testament. He didn't know he was writing the 27th book of the New Testament. He certainly didn't know he was writing at the end of a series of books that were 66 books. He didn't pen those words with that in mind. It's very much rather like Moses in Deuteronomy 4, where he says something very similar, where he says, you shall not add to the word that I command, nor shall you take away from it. So John instead is, in Revelation, is being instructed and is instructing us about the seriousness of our, of, of our in any way altering the self-revelation of God. So it would be wrong to take these verses and apply it to the whole of Bible. Now, this morning, I don't have time to address the issue of the canon of Scripture, which is basically the idea of which books belong in the Bible and which don't. For all that, you will have to take our Sunday school class, hopefully resuming soon, and you can take our Theology 1 class, and you can learn more about it there. But very briefly, let me simply say that the 66 books of the Bible that you hold in your hands are the Word of God, nothing more and nothing less. If you want to know who Jesus was and what he did, there are the books. These are the books that you have to go to. Any books that claim to tell you about Jesus have to square with these books. They are the original historical sources. If you want to know more, I would encourage you to to just look to a short resource in your ESV study Bible. Those are available to you online. You can find that there, or if you have the hard copy of the ESV Study Bible, it's in the back. It's on page 2,577. Yes, there's a book with 2,000 pages on it, and it's the ESV Study Bible. 2577. Now, even though verses 18 and 19 are not directly applicable to the Bible as a whole, let's take a moment to consider what the book of Revelation has said. We are given this stern warning to not treat the words of revelation lightly. We are given in verses 18 and 19 almost a divine copyright. Don't 
tamper with the word of God. And what has the Bible said? What has Revelation said to us? Well, there's three things that it said to us. There's a lot of things, but if I could summarize maybe three other points, it would be the church and the world and about God himself. First, one of the things Revelation has made clear is that churches and Christians struggle. Uh, If you were with us early on in Revelation, we looked at chapters 2 and 3, and there was these seven churches of Asia Minor, and all of them were struggling in one sense or another. Uh, Ephesus was doctrinally sound. They were hardworking, but you know what? They were unloving, and Christ was not down with that. Smyrna was being persecuted and needed to remain faithful. Pergamum was passionate about evangelism, but they didn't care about doctrine and didn't care about theology. They were really lax in it. Thyatira was strong in love and service, but sinfully tolerant and worldly. And the list could go on and on. Laodicea, the affluent and apathetic church. I mean, this, that, Laodicea was that church that had a remodeled church. I had a church building program. They had the money. They made their budget every, every year. And yet they nauseated Jesus. And the call in Revelation is to overcome. You have to fight the fight of faith. And, and churches need to be a place of grace and truth, or they desired to be, of logical precision and warm-hearted passion of careful thinkers and compassionate feelers, strong theology, tender love, reaching out to help people in this temporal world, but to also help them eternally. Churches will always have things to work on and will struggle. That's in Revelation. We dare not take away that truth from God's word. The church has had a long history of imperfections. And if you found the perfect church, just know that it doesn't exist. It is a mirage. The church has been divided. It's been fractured. It's been morally compromised. The church has been involved in sexual misconduct. The Southern Baptist Convention, its origins were formed because they disagreed with anti-slavery attitudes. We are guilty as churches of being more political than we are gospel. And yet, the church over and over in Revelation is called what? The Bride of Christ. We dare not remove that from the book of Revelation. God's plan of redemption in all of history is through the lampstands that he places here on earth in the local churches. So you don't throw out the church because God doesn't. It is God's duty to snuff out the churches of those lampstands that are not faithful. Not ours. Christ will do that. The call here is to be a good member. Be a good church member. And be a part of what God is doing in the church. Despite all of its struggles. And to fight and overcome. Second, we learn in Revelation that the real battle is spiritual. The real battle is spiritual. Revelation pulls back the curtain of this drama. And and shows us the drama of what's really happening. This cosmic battle that is happening. I mean, just all the pictures that we've had in Revelation of Jesus walking among the lampstands. That's what is happening 
in this world, though we may not see it with our eyes. You see the devil and you see his pawns and you see the beast, which represents political power and regimes. You see the world as Babylon. You see the lamb is fighting with the dragon. Revelation pulls back this curtain and says the real battle is a spiritual one. Because, you know, in our world, TVs and movies, what are they going to tell you the real battle is? The, the real battle is justice. Or the real battle is how to have a really fun, like, romantic romp in your life. Or our commercials tell us, well, what you really need is to take this drug so that you can live longer because eat, drink, and be merry. You can listen to some academics and they'll tell you that the real battle is a school. It's a, it's a job. It's, how, it's you know, fighting for salary negotiations. Presidents will tell you that the real battle is systemic racism. The real battle is, supremacy, is white supremacy and global warming. And ex-presidents will tell you that the real battle is voter fraud. But the real battle, Revelation tells us, is how to be happy and holy in Jesus. The struggle to overcome, to fight the fight of faith. It's a fight to believe that Jesus died for me and to believe that Jesus is coming again. And that influences, that means I live a completely different life, a faithful witness in this world while I wait. That's what it means. So we dare not add to Revelation. It's the fight of faith to not add and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. You have to vote this way. And we dare not take away from Revelation what it has to say about the horror of murder and abortion and sexual immorality. Third, in Revelation, we've seen that God and the Lamb are glorious. It says something not only, Revelation has taught us not only about the church and also about this world, but also about God himself. There's an exalted picture of God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We do not have a small God. The picture we have in Revelation is of God's absolute sovereignty over everything, over creation, over history, over Satan and demons, over kings and nations, over life and death, over sin, over conversion. Just listen to the language of God in Revelation. He is Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and is to come. He is the Almighty. He sits on a throne radiating with brilliant colors, encircled by a rainbow with a lake of crystal before him, and these surrounded by four living creatures and 24 angelic elders around him. And think about our picture of Jesus in Revelation. He's the first and the last, the one who holds the, the keys to, to, to death in Hades. His head is like wool. His robe is white. His sash is golden. His voice like many waters. His feet like burnished bronze. His mouth like a sword. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. His eyes were blazing fire. He has all the crowns. His robe is dipped in blood. And on his thigh is his name, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is Jesus think of all the songs that are being sung to him throughout revelation holy 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 is the lord god almighty worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and glory and honor forever and ever on and on in revelation it goes is he worthy he is 
God is not wringing his hands in dismay over this world. And he is also not our therapist. He is also not our buddy. He is the Almighty, and we worship him. Let us not tamper with God's word and what it says about the church, what it says about this world, and what it says about God. We dare not walk down that road of Satan who said, did God actually say? Because our souls depend on it. Third and last, God has given us a word of invitation and God has given us a a word of admonition. He also gives us a word of expectation. This is what we see in verse 20. We're taught one more time that Jesus is coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And response is the last petition, the last request in the Bible. It says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Amen, which means, yes, let it be, I agree, come, Lord Jesus. Now, friends, honestly, can you pray that prayer? Do you hope for Jesus' return, or do you find that difficult? My wife grew up in a Christian household, and when she was young, she learned about Christ's return, and it terrified her because there was all these other things she wanted to do. She had a great fear of his coming, and so being biblically sound, she looked at Mark 13, 32, and it said, where Jesus said, concerning that day or the hour, no one knows like of his return. So in her prayers that night, she would say, Jesus, I know you're coming. And bless her heart, she thought that that meant she had tricked God. Because she thought, I got you, God. No one knows the day or the hour that you're coming, but I know you're coming tomorrow or tonight, so you can't come. Because there's all these other things I want to do. But aren't we the same? Have you made your job that God has given you to provide for you and your family an idol? Is this something you really want to do, you can't do without? Has God given you the gift of children? And now you love that gift more than the one who gave them to you. Do you want Christ to come and finally act and put an end to the world's rebellion, to put an end to all our waywardness, to put an end to all the suffering? Do you want the truth of God to be finally known and declared and his glorious goodness? I mean, think about this past year. Think about those times when you've been happy or where you've smiled. I I know maybe some of you are still waiting for that time. But think of it. Maybe there was a time that you smiled at something. Have you ever once smiled when thinking about Jesus coming back? Jesus coming back. Has that been a source of happiness or joy for you at all? Can you, do you trust God in his holiness and justice and, and, and perfection and grace and mercy when it comes to your unfinished plans? Or your unmet hopes, even your unsaved family and friends? Do you trust his timing? If you cannot honestly say, come, Lord Jesus, take some time today. Take some time in our communion, which we'll soon have, 
and meditate and think about that. Why? Talk about it with one another after about why you don't. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So perhaps your heart is cold to Christ, reluctant to pray for his return, because you made sure your life in this world is not pitiful. Your life is not something that the eyes of this world questions. It does not depend on our hope in Jesus to make it all add up. Do you live a life that is inexplicable to people in this world because you have so wagered it, you have so leveraged it on the truth of the Christian gospel and the coming of Christ? Or do you hedge your bets every day? In what you've done with your job, in what you've done with your money, in your relationships, and what you say and you don't say, in what you pray and what you don't pray for. The book of Revelation calls us again and again to overcome because this fallen world is so opposed to Jesus and his gospel. So if you think you found a middle way somehow where you can kind of thread that needle of having God love you and this world love you, then you are in a deceitful and deadly mirage. Again and again, we've seen Revelation that we are called to be true to God. We are in conflict with this world. That is why this declaration of Jesus' soon return is a word of hope. And that is why we as Christians, as a church, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. This is a typical Christian prayer. Is this even a, does this make your top 10? You know, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul writes, our Lord, come. Now, if you look at that in the Greek, it's not even in Greek. It's actually in Aramaic. And it's, Paul writes it in Aramaic because it's almost as if this prayer was taught by Jesus himself. Because how did Jesus teach his disciples? He taught them what? How to pray. And he, when he taught them how to pray, what did he teach? Thy kingdom come. And so, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that phrase... Our Lord come in Aramaic. He is hearkening back to Jesus, and it is that word, Maranatha. Our Lord come. Maranatha. And this is a joyful anticipation. You know, often Revelation has likened the, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, like to a wedding. And as I've been meeting with engaged couples over this past year, uh, Kevin and Becca, or Eric and Susan, or Dennis and Alyssa. I've seen it. I've seen this joyful anticipation of the wedding. Like, I can't wait to be married. And that is where we are. We are in this period of expectation. We are in this period of anticipation where we will say we will be true to who we will be married to. We won't, we're not going to give of ourselves to anybody else. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to be engaged forever. I want to be married. At some point, we want to finally be married. At some point, we want to be with Jesus. We want all of his purposes to be consummated in this world. And he is coming soon. And this belief, this desire is what sets us apart and makes us a Christian assembly and congregation. We pray, come Lord Jesus. And there's all these reasons why we should pray for this. 
to long for his return. It's a desire to see the church appear in the beauty of holiness and finally reflect the, the way that God has intended us to be. We desire for the church to overcome and outlast its persecution. We desire for the multitude of saints from every tribe and tongue and nation to come in. We desire for the church to be purified and visible and united. On that day, Satan will be finally and fully defeated. On that day, our satisfaction will be full. On that day, our struggles with sin will cease. On that day, our bodies will be raised and glorified to praise and serve and be with God forever. And on that day, our love will finally be completely matched with his. And we could go on, couldn't we? The world... The whole world does not satisfy the church of Christ. That is why she prays, come, Lord Jesus. The carnal don't say that. You know, demons in Jesus' day, they were saying, oh, let this not be the hour. But Christians are precisely those marked out as loving his word. That's what 2 Timothy 4.8 says. Those who have loved his appearing will receive that crown of righteousness. So if you truly desire Christ to come, there will be evidence in your life. Your prayers will change. The way you live will change. You will have a desire for God's people that is inexplicable. You will live a way in which is the rest of the world will look on and say, that's weird. You're a little bit like a crazy person. And this appearing will be glorious to us. It is better than the things this world can afford. I'd rather have Jesus. That's what we found in Revelation, isn't it? Have you found that? I'd rather have Jesus. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that you have given us. In this season, you have given us to be in your word, to be in this particular book, in this particular season. Lord, you are sovereign over all things, and we are thankful that you have given us a glimpse of what is really happening in this world and what is going to happen in the world to come. And may it mean, O Lord, that we endure, that we are faithful. And that we are people who are calling on others to come. Just as you have brought us to yourself. May we we be good and faithful students of your word. And Father, may we pray with eager expectation. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we were reminded in God's word to be in eager expectation for the Lord's coming. And that, in one sense, is what the Lord's Supper is all about. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Jesus comes and brings heaven to earth. The Lord's Supper is something we do in remembrance of Christ, but it also is also something that we do in, in anticipation of Christ. And so when Christ returns, 
we will feast, and so the Lord's Supper is our pilgrim food. Like the Passover, it's a meal on the way, directing our attention and senses to whet our appetite for the day when all things will be made new. So if you haven't gotten their communion elements, there are some on the table over there. It's a good time to get it right now or over there. And maybe I can ask somebody to bring one for me as well. We'll hear what Paul has to say concerning the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. It's our tradition here at Redeemer that if you have not yet participated in believer's baptism, that you refrain from taking the elements. However, if you are a Christian and you are a member here or at another gospel preaching church, uh, I invite you to participate with us in communion. And so in the next few moments, we'll have a time of silence and prayer. This is a time where we can go before our Lord. We can confess our sins and, and, and draw near to God once again and, and have a hope in his appearing. After that time of silence, I will lead us in prayer and we can take the elements together. So go ahead and bow your heads in the time of prayer and reflection. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks that while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ, and that you have received us into fellowship and communion with you. And we ask that as we partake of the bread and cup, we would grow more and more in true faith, continually exercising all manner of good works. Unite our hearts together as we partake of the elements, uh, that we may be a beacon of hope and truth until Christ's return. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand and start unpackaging these elements while I read to you Matthew 26. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's go ahead and take the elements together with hearts of thankfulness.
Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks. You have given us this grace of communion with your Son, Jesus, who, having died on our behalf, now gives us food and nourishment unto eternal life. And so by the sacred use of these elements, we commemorate together the dying love of Jesus. Grant us grace that we may never be unmindful of these things and engrave them on our hearts that we may be strengthened for every good work as we wait with eager anticipation for the day when we can drink it new with you in the kingdom. Maranatha, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The benediction comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed and have a blessed Lord's Day.